Oramai. Good morning. This is Judith Lay welcoming you to Manx Radio and to the podcast of this week's edition of At Your Service. Manx Radio. Visitors to the island are always welcome on this programme as they each bring their own story. Well, my guest today brings not only his own story, but also a story that, despite being a couple of hundred years old, has a very modern message. He's Reverend Dr Tim McQuibbon, and we'll meet him after our first hymn. And today's music comes from Maddie Pryor with the Melstock Band and Choir. Thank you. 
for a thousand tongues to sing, a great Charles Wesley hymn, and there'll be more music from Matty Pryor later in the programme. Last summer, Methodist minister and historian Reverend Dr Tim McQuibbon visited the island with a touring exhibition to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the birth of Hugh Bourne, one of the founders of Primitive Methodism. You might have seen the exhibition, as I did, in Union Mills, and it was there that I recorded the conversation you're going to hear today. Now, you're probably wondering why I've taken so long to share this interview with you. Well, the reason is that just after Tim's visit to the island, he was taken seriously ill, requiring major heart surgery and a long period of rehabilitation. And I felt it was respectful to wait until he was well on his way to recovery before featuring our conversation. He's now enjoying retirement in Cheshire and is a chaplain at Chester Cathedral. And during this conversation, listen out for two quite unexpected Manx connections. Methodist ministers expect to move around quite a bit during their years in ministry, but Reverend Dr Tim McQuibbon has probably been more mobile than most. Since his ordination into the Methodist Church, he's been in Yorkshire, Lancashire, Bristol, Oxford, Salisbury, Cambridge and Rome. So, how did it all begin? We join the story when Tim, a keen historian, is working in local government in South Yorkshire. I was an archivist in Doncaster in South Yorkshire and I became increasingly involved with local preaching there and the minister fell ill and I took on responsibility for a midweek service and it was taking that on that I first started to think, maybe ministry is for me. And that is indeed how it turned out to be. So after training, your first posting was where? To Halifax in West Yorkshire in charge of two chapels, very different churches, uh, one ex-Wesleyan Methodist, the other ex-United Methodist, both of them uh, connected with Wesley, so historic churches. And that, of course, uh, was grist to my mill because I was a historian, church historian, and I'd been doing research on Methodist history. So to have two chapels from the late 18th, early 19th century was a, just a joy. You say Wesleyan and United, what would be the distinction? there. After Wesley's death in 1791, Methodism went in different directions and the Methodist New Connection was one of those groups that split off from the mainstream of Methodism, as were the primitive Methodists that I'm now connected with. They had different ideas of what the legacy of Wesley meant in terms of where they were going. Mostly the theology was exactly the same, uh, a gospel for all, but in many respects, other things were different. Who had power within the church? Was it the ministers or was it the lay people? That division in the Methodist Church following the death of John Wesley is something we'll talk about later in the programme. Now let's find out more about Reverend Dr Tim McQuibbon's own ministry. It was called back to the college where I had trained to teach church history. I'd spent 10 years in local government as an archivist and that connection between our Methodist history and the, the work of the church, Methodist heritage and contemporary mission was something that I developed an interest for uh, and enthusiasm for. I'm not a cradle Methodist. My father was an Anglican priest, and so therefore I was learning all sorts of things about the heritage into which I was now a very much a part. 
So what after that then for you? Well, I got called to Oxford to set up the Wesley and Methodist Study Centre there. And we spent nine years in Oxford using history as a tool for evangelism and mission and equipping others to know where they have come from in order to equip them for where the church is going today. Clearly, those two appointments were very well suited to Tim's keen interest in both the past history and the present mission of the church. But there was still more for him to do. Well, I I was looking for a change in terms of being there for nine years and the opportunity arose where I was encouraged to apply to be the principal of Sarum College, an ecumenical college, formerly Salisbury and Wells Theological College. I've always worked ecumenically in in every place that I've been. I was an ecumenical officer for West Yorkshire. We did a lot of work with other colleges in Bristol. In Oxford, the college itself reached out to Catholic, Anglican, many other students. And in Salisbury, it was very much an ecumenical team at the heart of Catholic, Anglican and other people contributing to the teaching programmes there. And then, just at the point when Tim and his wife Angela thought they might possibly retire to Cambridge... I was suddenly prompted to apply for the job of ecumenical officer in Rome to set up the Methodist ecumenical office in Rome and to serve that. It worked out well because of a number of people who've worked ecumenically in Rome. The first person who occupied the role as minister at Ponte St Angelo Methodist Church, the English-speaking work in Rome for the Methodists, was Rex Kissack. And of course, with such illustrious predecessors who had been working ecumenically, making those vital relationships with the Vatican across the river at at the other side. I had a lot to work upon. So it wasn't exactly starting from scratch, but it was a new opportunity to give a particular focus to ecumenical work. We had a tremendous ministry to people uh, who visited Rome and came to our church on a Sunday. We also discovered that we had rather more friends than we imagined. People who said, oh, you're in Rome, we'd like to come and visit you. And so in the five years that we were there, we reckoned that we had, including groups, 2,000 people visit us, ecumenically, not just all Methodists, many, many people who came and used Ponte St Angelo. Sometimes to stay, we had rooms in the uh, centre that people could use for sabbatical or study leave, uh, but often passing through and wanting to experience as we did, the wonderful sense of being a Protestant in Rome. What does that mean? Well, it is, of course, true that over 90% of those in, in Italy are Roman Catholic, and many of them will still go to churches. But it is also the case that since Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, the ecumenical nature of the work of the Roman Catholic Church has been very, very committed in terms of the uh, Pontifical Council for the Promotion of Christian Unity, they were determined and are still determined to make those links with other churches and world communions, of which Methodism was one of those most substantial. You've touched on on the fact that you followed in the footsteps of Rex Kizak, a name that's held in high respect here on the island. But somebody else who's very well known to us on the island is Canon Philip Gillespie, who was for some time looking after the Roman Catholic Church on the island. And he arrived in Rome shortly after you did, didn't he? 
he did indeed in, in 2015, I think it was. And, and Philip was such a welcoming person in terms of having us involved in his work as rector of the Beta College, offering theological training and, and formation for priests in mature years. And we were frequent visitors at the Beda, not just on the feast day of 25th of May, but at other times of the year. And it was a, a very important gathering of different people from different churches coming together and to whom they offered hospitality. And we were deep, deeply grateful for that. Were you sorry to leave, Tim? Yes, it was the right time to come home for family reasons and other reasons. But there is so much about Rome that we do still miss. Not always the weather, incredibly hot in summer, but also the food and the fellowship that we enjoyed in the years that we were there. So, did a return from Rome mean retirement? Not a bit of it. Tim slipped into the perfect role for a historian and a Methodist, research officer at Anglesey Brook in Cheshire. It's a museum and chapel of primitive Methodism, so one of the strands of Methodism it has as its focus. It's a visitor centre, it's a museum with a whole host of interesting artefacts that you must really come and visit. The director, the heritage officer and the education officer are really trying to tell the story of primitive Methodism, but in a way which connects with the contemporary work of the Methodist church and other churches, of trying to recapture some of those early emphases of primitive Methodism.
Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. More music from Maddie Pryor and the Melstock Band and Choir. At the time I recorded this conversation with Reverend Dr. Tim McQuibbon, he was Research Officer at Anglesey Brook Chapel and Museum of Primitive Methodism, and so the perfect person to tell me just what is Primitive Methodism and how did it come into being. And to get those answers, it seems that we need to go back to the founders of the Methodist Church, Brothers John and Charles Wesley. Well, John died in 1791 and his brother Charles had already died three years earlier in 1788. And after that, who was to take over? Well, it was a Methodist conference of 100 preachers. And not everybody agreed with the direction that Wesleyan Methodism was taking. And so there were various splits. And one of these splits came with the formation of what came to be known as Primitive Methodism. Enter Hugh Bourne and William Clowes, who decided that what Methodism really needed was a new revival to get back to the early origins of Methodism and to preach in the way that John and Charles had in the open air and to do it in a way which attracted new people to the Methodist message and way of presenting the gospel. Wesley did say plain preaching for plain people. The problem was the Wesleyans had gone up in the world. They had become wealthy because they had become more educated and therefore they weren't making the sort of connections with ordinary people, working people anymore. And Hugh Bourne and William Clowes decided that that needed to be the heart of their way of presenting the gospel. The Wesleyans didn't quite see it that way. And so when Hugh Bourne and William Clowes set out to have great camp meetings, gathering thousands of people in open spaces on the tops of hills like Malcop in Staffordshire or in the open fields or the marketplaces, then the Wesleyans said, no, you must come to the chapel. We want it to be a more controlled form of religion to know who is preaching, what they're preaching, and certainly not to have camp meetings in the open air, and certainly not to have women preaching. And at that point, Hugh Bourne and William Clowes said, Wesleyan Methodism isn't for us. In any case, the Wesleyans said, you're no longer members. And so they set up on their own. And that was the beginning of primitive Methodism. They were preaching in a way and reaching out to people in the language that they spoke and meeting the needs that they had, particularly those who were in poverty and those who were seeking a spiritual sustenance. They touched the parts that other churches couldn't. We're celebrating the 250th anniversary of the birth of Hugh Bourne. But the things that he was saying are still appropriate now, aren't they? They are, because clearly he wanted to affirm the ministry of women. And he had a number of notable women preachers who had notable ministries in the early movement of the primitive Methodists. But he also enabled people to lead a holy life, which meant that they were committed to working with the poor, but they were also committed to values uh, such as temperance 
a sharing of their natural resources one with another. So it was like a, a Pentecostal church going back to the early beginnings of Christianity, which is why, of course, they were called themselves the Primitive Methodists. John Wesley himself had reminded uh, people in Chester, my native city, in the year before he died, 1790, he said, the danger is that you're getting away from what I preached down on in the very beginning. What you need to be is primitive Methodists. So that's where they got the term from, from Wesley himself. And they wanted to live it out in reaching out to the poor, in making better working conditions for the poor. Hence the fact that many primitive Methodists were in the birth of the trade union movement. They were there in terms of the temperance movement, enabling people not to spend all their money on drink, but to harness them in terms of becoming more educated. The Sunday schools were very much a part of the primitive Methodist movement, all things which enabled people to have better lives, which were committed to the common good. Hughborn knew it from his own family experience. His father was a drunkard. It was down to his mother, Ellen, that he was able to have some basic education and tear himself away from that legacy of a, a household that was impoverished by the money that was uh, spent on, on, on drink. He was a man of, of great energy, wasn't he, Hughborn? He was. Uh, just imagine walking 30 or 40 miles, not just every Sunday, but throughout the week to get to some of these preaching places, including, of course, coming here to the Isle of Man, uh, making such an impact in terms of the revival in the 1830s and 1840s. So much so that, sadly, his feet became very, very diseased. Uh, and, and in latter years, he wasn't able to walk as much as he, he should have been able to. But it was because of his commitment to preaching in the open air and travelling everywhere, wherever there was an opportunity to go and preach and share the gospel. When people see that kind of dedication and selflessness, you can't help but be attracted by it, can you? He was quite a basic, shy man, but he must have had a charismatic character because many preachers said they were swayed and converted by Hugh Bourne. The commitment shone out from what he did, not so much what he said, but how he acted in his life as a preacher. But here we are, 250 years later, still talking about him. I think within Methodism, we need to not only to honour John and Charles Wesley as the co-founders of our Methodist movement, but also to remember the different traditions within Methodism which themselves contributed to the ongoing revival and renewal of the church. The church is re renewed in every generation and it needs people like Hugh Bourne to take that work forward. So the story is a story of transformed lives in the past, interpreted and carried forward in terms of the legacy of Hugh Bourne and many others. I'd like people to say, what are the values that he and other primitive Methodists had? And how are those relevant for our work in terms of our outreach, in terms of the way we present the gospel? Maybe we need to get out of the four walls of our churches today get back into the literally open places and, and seek to occupy the marketplace once more and to involve ourselves in public service. Thank you to my guest, Reverend Dr Tim McQuibben. He's retired now as research officer at Anglesey Brook but continues to be a volunteer there alongside his chaplaincy work at Chester Cathedral. 
And now it's time to take a look at our notice board and we begin with a reminder that the service this morning in St Andrew's United Reformed Church on Glen Crutchery Road here in Douglas starts at the earlier time of half past ten. The preacher today is Mr Tunis Bassage and there's a warm welcome for all. This Wednesday evening in St Adamnan's Lonnan Old Church, Bishop Peter will conduct a service of Holy Communion starting at half past seven. Children from Olivia Landel's Sing-Up School will provide the music and there's a warm welcome for all at this beautiful and historic little church. The season of summer concerts gets underway this week, firstly in St Thomas's Church here in Douglas, just off the promenade near the Gaiety Theatre. As usual, they'll be offering an hour of popular music with different artists to entertain each Wednesday evening. The series gets off to a fine start this Wednesday, the 14th, with music from Onken Silver Band, conducted by David Caron. The concert starts at a quarter to eight, and whilst admission and light refreshments are free, a little donation to the collection as you leave would be much appreciated. This Thursday, the 15th, there's another simple lunch being served in the Cool Chapel Hall between noon and 2pm. And the Cool Hall is easy to find just at the top end of the Isle of Man business park. Homemade soups, bread and cheese, dessert and a choice of tea or coffee costs just £7 and there's a warm welcome for all. Two events now for Saturday the 17th. The Island Spirituality Network have a meeting in St John's Mill on Saturday morning from 10am to 1pm when the guest speaker will be well-known author and Bible scholar Father Nick King. Father Nick, who is a Jesuit priest based in London's Mayfair, will be taking a deeper look at the Gospel of St John. There's no need to book, just come along to St John's Mill at 10 o'clock on Saturday. There's a suggested voluntary donation of £10 for the morning, but no one is ever asked for money, so please don't stay away for financial reasons. Everyone is welcome. Also on Saturday the 17th, there's a Taze workshop in the woods. A peaceful afternoon spent in the silent space of the woods to learn more about the spirit of Taze and learn some of their chants together. Cheryl Cousins is leading the workshop and says, We'll be leaving Dolby schoolrooms at half past two to walk down to the woods for the workshop, returning to the schoolrooms for tea and cake at five o'clock. There's no charge, though donations are much appreciated. The walk is approximately 30 minutes on roads and tracks, and Cheryl says you might need mid-repellent, sun hats, water or sweaters, according to the weather. Seating will be cushions on logs. The wet weather alternative will be to meet and hold the event in Dolby schoolrooms. Numbers are restricted, so please book in advance by contacting Cheryl on 843 471. 843 471. And we finish with a look ahead to next Sunday the 18th. Sandygate Methodist Chapel on Jerby Road will celebrate their 161st chapel anniversary with a service at half past six on Sunday the 18th, led by Pauline Corlett. And also next Sunday evening, the Mariners Choir will be in Abbeylands Chapel for a service starting at half past six, at which Mrs Marinda Fargo will preach. Gareth Moore will be the organist and Gary Corkill the soloist. And as usual, there'll be supper and community hymn singing after the service. 
And that's all that we have time for now. But I'll be back tonight at nine o'clock to open the door to our virtual late lounge and welcome you to Sundown, a mix of easy listening music and a bit of nostalgia to round off your day. I'd love you to join me if you can. And so, till whenever we meet again, this is Judith saying thank you for listening and I wish you and those you love a blessed and peaceful week and a very good morning. The Nation Station Men's Way